Well, good evening. Oh, you guys sound really enthusiastic tonight. I'm excited to be back. It's been three weekends since I had the privilege of preaching. It's good to be back with you this weekend as we continue our series, Real Life Facing Off with the Giants. Uh, kids, fifth grade and under, if you want to make your way quietly downstairs to Clubhouse for your time of teaching, while the rest of us grab a Bible, uh, grab a Bible or your e-reader, your phone, silence those things, put them on airplane mode, and turn to the Old Testament the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, the 18th chapter. Now, those of you that are new to MCC, those of you that are joining us online this evening, I'm so glad you're here, and I am so excited to hear from you throughout the week. We do that through the Get Connected card, but those that are online, I always like to see those checking in on Facebook or YouTube or filling out that electronic Get Connected card to know that you're listening, that you are part of the family. In fact, there are a couple of folks that I want to mention tonight. Howard Clausen. Howard always sits out here. And Dakin, when I talked to Howard this week, he's like, I miss sitting next to Dakin. And he mentioned you ladies too, so don't feel left out. But I want you to do me a favor. And uh, we've got a camera guy up there. He's going to shoot that camera right over there at you guys. And I want you to just turn around and, and wave at Howard. Howard hadn't been able to be with us since March. So Howard's watching right now. And uh, Howard, we miss you, and uh, we look forward to your return. Uh, Howard's one of those folks that has a lung disease, and he can barely get his breath, let alone if he were to become sick with the flu or whatever this is that's been going around uh, here lately. So we want to make sure that uh, he stays healthy. And then uh, certainly Paula Stewart, who's been with us from almost the beginning uh, here, and she is no longer able to be out, but it's, it's good to have them and many others many others watching us. Uh, congratulations to uh, Adam and uh, Jessica Weaver who were married here last Saturday night. I know uh, Adam's mom is looking for them, but they're still on their honeymoon apparently and didn't make it out to church tonight. And then Jason and Amy Toby, where are you at? They're right back here celebrating 20 years this week. Congratulations, way to go. And setting the example. Tonight's subject is just that, it's relationship, right? From the very beginning, we understand this about God. God is a relational God. And when the Bible said in Genesis that it's not good for man to be alone, he was speaking not just in the context of relationship in marriage, but man's need for relationship with other people. And we have all chosen people to share a part of our life with, to be in relationship with. Some of us have, some of them have stuck with us through the good and the bad. Others have come in and out of our life for a season, adding in a positive way or maybe even in a negative way to your life. But every relationship plays a role in our development as individuals and in particular, our growth and development as Christians. And so that's why this week's topic is significant. That's why we are facing off tonight with this giant called friendship. Tonight, I want to look at how to build a friendship from the ground up, what it should look like according to the example from God's word, what's reasonable to expect and what isn't. And most importantly, how to navigate the different seasons that we go through as friends. But before we dive into our scripture tonight, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, we are humbled tonight to gather in your presence. 
and open up your word that brings life and hope and direction. We continue to lift our country and our leaders to you with repentant hearts, asking that you heal our land. We know the answer to this prayer comes through our personal commitment to living our lives, surrendered to you and to you alone as Lord. And so as we look to you tonight and the example that your word gives for facing off with this giant of friendship, I pray your spirit will speak to us, and I pray that we will let your spirit empower us for change. May we set the pace, and may we set the example in this area of life for the world around us that is so desperately searching. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, on the very day that David slays the giant Goliath, you remember that's where we started this series a few weeks ago, is David coming up against this giant that defied the armies of God, that stood in contrast to all of the things that God and his nation represent. On that very day that David cut that giant's head off and shishkebobbed that man on his own spear, uh, that's my favorite part of that story. We're introduced to this friendship that David has with another teenager named Jonathan. Now, what makes this friendship so unique is that it's probably the most unlikely friendship captured in the pages of God's Word. David is a guitar-playing shepherd boy. At this point, he is a servant in the king's house, and Jonathan... Jonathan is King Saul's son. He is the prince of Israel. He is to be the next in line for the throne. And in verse 1, it says, after David had finished talking with Saul, after David had brought in Goliath's head on this platter and presented it to Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. It says that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let David return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him so. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so let's begin on a real baseline level when it comes to friendship and the truth about it. Not every acquaintance, not every acquaintance is or will become a close personal friend. There is a difference between being acquaintance and a friend. And we often make the mistake, we often mistaken acquaintances for friends. Now let's define this a little bit. Acquaintances are those people that sit next to us at church, but but don't frequent our home. Acquaintances are individuals that we work with, that we go to sporting events with, we sit up in the stands watching the soccer game with, but they don't know our intimate struggles or our hurts. Acquaintances are people that we connect with on social media. I'll tell you one of the most foolish things that they did with Facebook was called everybody friends because we have totally misunderstood what a friend is. And we're often so disappointed because we've labeled these people as a friend when they have no business at all being a friend. They're barely an acquaintance. Now, let me, 
let me be clear that acquaintances are good to have. Acquaintances are good to have. They encourage us. We share life stories with them. We, we have interesting adventures together. We have common groups and interests. But not all acquaintances are friends. Now, over the last 15 years of my ministry here, I have had hundreds, hundreds of acquaintances. People I've visited in the hospital, people I've shared seasons of life with, people I've shared in life group with and worshiped with, served with. Many of these acquaintances I've gleaned amazing insight from. I'll always remember the man who attended here several years ago for a season. He invented the hotel ice machine. And I gleaned so much from him about how to deal with criticism from people. But he was, he was simply an acquaintance. And here's what I want to point out to you, and that is my confusion about the two has brought a lot of disappointment and hurt in my life. And I have a feeling that it has you too. When we mistaken acquaintances as being friends, and that moment of truth comes, we become disillusioned. We become disappointed. We experience heartache. And that's what makes friendship such a giant. And so what do we do? We accept the truth that not all acquaintances become friends. And we are blessed, get this, we are blessed if we have one good friend in any particular season of our life. Now let me define this further when I say you're blessed to have one good friend in any particular season of your life. I, you, we, we can't be fully loved unless we are fully known. I can't be fully loved until I am fully known. Now, just think about that for just a second before we go on with the rest of that statement. Think about all the people that you call friends on Facebook. Take, think about all the acquaintances that you have at church, even in your small groups, that you think are friends, and then they say something, they do something that runs counter to everything that you are, and then you wonder, where did this person come from? How can they possibly be my friend? Well, they weren't your friend to start with. If they were your friend, they would know what hurts you. If they were your friend, they would know what triggers you. They're an acquaintance. Friends, however, are people who know things about you that only one or two others know. Now here in verse 2, God gives us some detail about David and Jonathan's friendship. David is brought into Saul's home his physical home. For this season of their life, they live under the same roof. He's part of Jonathan's father's personal band. David's a guitar player. Sometimes he's the harp player. He's part of Jonathan's personal band, Jonathan's father's personal band. They eat at the same table. They have this in common. They both come from dysfunctional families. They both had terrible fathers. Remember David's father? Oh, you must be talking about the runt. 
the shepherd boy. He paraded all seven sons before the prophet and, and didn't even think about parading David out there as even having a, a chance. They both had disappointing earthly dads. They share the same faith. David and Jonathan spend a lot of time together. Time. I've spoken to so many church folks over the years who become frustrated by year three of attending the same church. How many of you have been here three years or less? Raise your hand. There's a bunch of you. A bunch of you usually here. Three years or less. And I can tell you almost within a month when you're going to feel different frustrations. Why? Because I felt them too. This is year 15 for me. And there's frustrations in year one. There's frustrations in year three. There's frustrations in year seven. There's frustrations in year 12 or 13 that comes in the life of every believer. And the problem is, is nobody tells you this. Because usually by year three, we move on to the next church and we start the cycle all over again. But I want you to think about this. The number one complaint about people who leave MCC after three years isn't the preaching, even though they could list that as number one and they'd be right. It isn't the music. And we have, thank you, Jason. Where's Jason at? Carly, yeah, great job, you guys. Right? New haircut, everything. I mean, you look good up there. Great job. But it's not the music. You know what it is? People say, i just not feeling it. I'm just not making a deep connection with anyone else. And you know, for a long time, I tried to qualify that. Well, you're, not, you're just not involved enough, or you're, you're just not serving enough. But, but that doesn't, that's not always true. Some people are serving, serving, serving. They're working, working, working. The deal is, is that they don't feel like they've made lasting, significant friendships. And I finally figured it out. How can you form a friendship by spending one or two hours together each week when most of the time you're not even getting to do the talking, right? One of the big heads up here is doing the talking, right? Blah, 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 right? And you don't even get the chance to do that. Think, think about it just from a, a purely math standpoint, right? You spend three hours, let's say you spend three hours and those whole three hours are spent one-on-one -on -one with somebody in the church. Let's say you do that every week for three years. That ends up being, it sounds like a lot, 468 hours. That's 19 days. 19 days over three years. Now, Think about the people that you say, but I make such good friends at work, or I make such good friends down at the bar. I make such good friends at the ball field. It's true. I mean, people do. They, they think they make great friends at the bar, and it's because they're spending a lot more than three hours there each, each week. Let's just say that you work 20 hours a week, or that you're at the bar 20 hours a week, or that you're at ball field. Some of you are at the ball field 20 hours a week. Over a three-year period of time, that's 3,120 hours. That's 130 days compared to 19 days. Do you see where I'm going with that? We expect to have true, deep, personal relationships after three years of spending one, two, three hours together, and we're upset because we don't know why it isn't happening. It must be someone else's fault. Several years ago, a man who had become involved in a leadership class I was teaching here at church once a month. At the end of group, we had been meeting once a month. This was maybe the second or third month. I don't remember exactly. But he waited for me at the door after the other 10 or 12 men had left. And we met right downstairs at those 
double doors and he confronted me for not being much of a friend. We both talked about it this week and we both recall it as being kind of a heated conversation. After he verbally assaulted me, that, that's his words, not mine. After he laid it on me pretty thick, I, I remember coming right back at him. At that point, I think maybe it was year three or four of my ministry here, and I was, I was kind of feeling that three-year mark. And I said, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes over the year by confusing acquaintances with friendships. And we talked about that, and we decided that day that we would intentionally set out to have, to develop a friendship. Now, over the next several years, we have spent literally hours together, more than three a week. We have shared vulnerable conversations, vulnerable conversations about some of the most difficult and personal topics that men could discuss. Neither one of us are sports fans, so it wasn't football. A couple of years ago, he stood before the group I was leading again on leadership. This time, he had come along to partner with me in doing some teaching. And he verbalized his commitment to me personally by saying something like this. He said, I believe in what David is doing and what God is doing through David. And I'll not leave this church as long as David is the pastor. Now, that's quite a commitment. I understand he recently let his wife in on that. But it was the first time in my 20 years of ministry that anyone had made such a commitment to me and kept it. You see, a friend is that person with which you've journeyed some time with, that you have built trust with, that you've served together with, that you've been transparent with and kept your trust now, a lot of us are transparent with our acquaintances, and then we wonder why they go out and mouth to everybody. Acquaintances don't keep your trust. But friends do. It's someone with which you can share an area of struggle in your life so that you can begin healing and they not turn on you. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you can be healed. And let me tell you, folks, to be fully known and fully loved is the most healing gift that one friend can give to another. Think about that. But it's to be guarded. So not every acquaintance is going to be a close personal friend. Here's second. Second, a true friend acknowledges God's sovereign plan. A true friend acknowledges God's sovereign plan and considers the needs and life of the other person above his own. Now that statement is about as grounded in scripture as any that a person could make. Notice first that the closest friend should share your faith in Christ. Now I knew, I knew going into tonight that some of you could take some of this and you could twist it around and you could come back and you could really just be an acquaintance to me about this. You could really meet me at the door and rake me over the coals about some of this. But before you do, I want you to think about it. The closest friend that you have should share your faith in Christ. Now, does that mean that every acquaintance that you have should be a close Christian? No, no. We should all have acquaintances who may not know Christ. 
but those you journey closest with for obvious reasons, and I shouldn't have to list them tonight, but I'll be glad to if you want to see me after the service. They should share your faith and they should be spurring you on in your faith. A friend who shares your faith is a person who lays down his life for you, not will lay down, but actively chooses you and God's plan for you over himself. Verse 3 says, Jonathan loved David as himself. And how did he show it? Verse 3, Jonathan, he took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now you guys know I don't really do a lot of this symbolism stuff when I preach. I don't try to wax eloquent or, or make all of these weird connections. But just think about this. All of these were an acknowledgement of two things. Jonathan's love for David. But they were also an acknowledgement of Jonathan's trust in God. Think about it. In a world where we look at the lives of people around us, people we call friends, we look at their lives with jealousy. We want what they have. We want their friendships. We want them all to ourselves. We want their position. We want their family. We want them to include us. And on some level, we many times manipulate that. People who we look at their lives and their lives look nothing like ours, but yet we want to believe that they are our friend. Here, Jonathan blows all of that out of the water when he, listen, the prince, the king's son, he takes off his princely robe. Might have even had some purple lining in it. And he puts it on David. He takes his sword. His sword is his defensive weapon. His bow. His fighting weapon. His belt. One of the most important pieces of a man's getup in that day. It holds it all together on him. It made me think of these people looting the stores down in Louisville and these other uh, cities. I was almost said democratic cities, but these, these other cities. <laughs> look out, look out. Some of these other cities, right? I, I just thought of them running down the road, trying to pull their pants up and carrying a 42 inch TV on their arms. You know, it's true. But David, <laughs> Jonathan lays all, it's funny, it really is. It's, you can laugh, it's all right. He lays all of this at David's feet. Think about it. If you saw David the week after that, who would you think he was? You'd think he was Jonathan. And vice versa. The best friend that I have on this earth, unapologetically, is my wife, Sarah. I don't say that just because we're married. You know I've said a lot of other things. But the reason she's my best friend is that we have chosen to lay down our life for the other. She has lived out to the very detail the words that she said to me 17 years ago when her promise was all of me, and I know we've only been married 16, but it was, we're on our 17th year, just clarifying that. But when she said, all of me, 
all of me to you. If I get this ring off my hand, I'd show it to you on the inside. But all of me to you. What she said was that is what's mine is now hers and what's hers is hers, right? No. But she is more beautiful today than she was 17 years ago. And yes, she takes care of herself. She ran eight miles today while I was eating my third breakfast. (laughs) But I personally believe this. And some of you with beautiful wives know this too. That the more I take care of her, the more beautiful she becomes. Uh, The Bible says that I am to wash her with the word. I am to speak good of her. I am to speak good things over her. I am to build her up. I am to love her as I love myself. And if you look close, there are some wrinkles around those eyes. She puts some kind of buttercream on those every night. And every one of those wrinkles, every one of those wrinkles could represent a time that I have not spoken my best over her or lifted her up or prayed for her or cared for her the way that I should. But fortunately, the good, the times that I have, overshadow even those blemishes. I recently shared these words with her, and I share them with you tonight for a reason. I looked her in the eye about seven or eight weeks ago, and I said, I will not allow, I will not let the poor choices of acquaintances in your life or mine Choices that are outside of God's will, I will not let those choices interfere in this household. I will not let them come in between us. And I looked at her, and you know how much I love my girls. I would lay down my life over and over again for them. No question, I lay it down every day for them. But I said, I will not let those girls come between you and me. Because it's you and me first, and then it's them. And when I made those declarations, I was declaring war against the giants that every couple faces who allow these things to interfere. When Jonathan laid down his life for David symbolically by giving all of these things, a much greater sacrifice was being made in Jonathan's heart Jonathan was declaring that day that nothing, not his father, not the throne, not even himself would stand in the way of God's plan for David's life. And nothing would stand in the way of their friendship. But then this reality is is true. And that is the covenant of friendship will always be tested. And I think this is perhaps the most challenging and insightful principle yet in facing off with this giant of friendship. Remember the purpose of a test, the purpose of a test is for us to know where we're at in our learning and development. It's not for God, it's for us. It's also important to know that trials and tests do what? They reveal where God is working and where he isn't. For David and Jonathan, both of these truths were fully engaged. In verses 9 through 16, you see some crazy things going on. The king, Jonathan's father, Saul, he, by this point, God had removed his spirit from Saul. Remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. The people wanted a king, so God gave them a king in Saul. Saul 
believed and worshiped God, but Saul was disobedient. And so God removed his spirit from Saul and replaced it in verses 9 and 10 with an evil spirit that would come over Saul, revealing Saul's true heart, his true heart, which was jealous, self-seeking, hateful. Why would God do that? Well, God allowed this to play out to reveal to the people of God that Saul's leadership was outside of God's plan and it wouldn't be tolerated. And that God had chosen a new man. There was a new kid on the block and his name was David. He had already been anointed as the next king. And so God allows all of these things to transpire so that he could prepare his people for David to take over as king. And what unfolds next is a whole other topic in itself. The short of it is this. Saul sets out to kill David, and David's friend Jonathan is placed right in the middle of it. And so the question for this next chapter of their story is, will Jonathan stand with his family, or will Jonathan stand with David and God's plan? And because David and Jonathan shared the same faith, Jonathan, in this test and in the ones that followed, what did he do? He showed his true commitment to God and to his friendship. Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. So how does Jonathan respond? The short of it is, is that Jonathan instead went to David and warned him. After Jonathan warns David, verse 4 of chapter 19 says, Jonathan went to his dad, he spoke well of David, And he said to his dad, Saul, the king, he said, let not the king do wrong to his servant, David. He has not wronged you. What's he doing? He's reminding his father of the truth of who David is, how he had taken his own life into his hands when by the strength of God, he killed the giant Goliath. How many of you have a friend that would do that for you? I have a friend that would do that other than my wife. I can't tell my wife some of the things that people do against me because she'd go and cut their head off. She's tough. She's a whole lot tougher than I ever am, would be. But I have a friend other than my wife who does the same for me. If people, even their own family, if people speak poorly of me, he will stop them and remind them of the truth of who I really am. He often stands out on the porch with me and he points up whenever he sees ducks or geese flying over in a format. And and he says, do you hear who's not honking? It's the guy out in front. Do you hear the ones that are, that are behind him honking for him? What's he telling me? He's saying, I'm honking for you. David honked. Jonathan honked for David. Chapter 20, verse 33. Saul throws a spear at his own son Jonathan to kill him. And yet, what does Jonathan do? Jonathan goes to his friend David and confirms that David must flee if he's to survive. A friend stands through you with the tests and the trials that come. I think it's worth noting in verse 41 that when Jonathan comes to David in the field to deliver this final message, that yes, indeed, Saul is out to kill him. David, Jonathan didn't want to believe it, but after all these things went down, he understood 
Jonathan comes to David in the field, and after Jonathan sends away the servant that was with him, it says in verse 41, David bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Why? Because David understood the sacrifice that his friend had made. David understood the depth of Jonathan's loyalty to their friendship, and he reciprocated that loyalty. Verse 42, they make a pledge. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. What's he saying? I'm going to watch out for your family You keep watching out for mine. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. Now, one of the scriptures that I had to reconcile with this week is found in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. It's on the screen. You've heard this before. It says, a man of many companions will come to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A man of many companions, many acquaintances will come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. (coughs) Anybody know who wrote down those words? I mean, God's spirit inspired them, but who wrote them down? David's son. David's son who wasn't even in the picture yet. Remember, David's 19, maybe 20 years old, maybe just 17 or 18 at this point in his life. He's still not even king yet. He still hadn't begun all of his marriages, five of them that would come. Well, yeah, I know. Whoa, that's awful. That's come from a woman who just survived one, let alone five men. These words of wisdom were recorded by David's son Solomon years after that last day that David and Jonathan saw each other out in that field. If you think about it, it's so insightful about David and Jonathan's friendship. How many of you have wondered, I gave you a little clue wanting you to kind of go there in your mind. I don't know if you did or not. How many older brothers did David have? Seven, six, seven, right? I can't remember. Seven, I think. Seven older brothers. Where were any of them? Where were they? I mean, the king's out to kill your brother. Where are they? Where are they? Where's David's family when all this is going on? Why in David's life was there a friend that stuck closer than a brother? How do you get a friend like that? Well, because at one point, Jonathan chose to lay down his life for David. It's as simple as that. Something no one else would do. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Oh, to have a friend. Oh, to have a friend like Jonathan. Last February, I've got to step down here for a second because I forgot something. Last February, I spoke a sermon. Some of this material came from that sermon. It's not a complete copy. 
in that sermon, we spoke about relationship and about friendships, and I only used about a paragraph from David and Jonathan's story. And that paragraph was the one that we started with today about the commitment that Jonathan made to David. When Jonathan took off his robe, then his tunic, he laid down his sword, his bow, right? He laid all of this down. So on February 27th, I was in my office Saturday night after the service. Sunday came, Monday, Tuesday. In the middle of the day, a friend that I'd been developing a relationship with over the last four years, we, we were as different as night and day. <laughs> I mean, we were born a day apart, we come to find out. Born a day apart. But we, our paths have gone this way. And the church here allowed our paths to come together over these last, it had been almost four years. And he came in to me, and he had this sweatshirt on. He took it off. Luckily, he had something on underneath. But he came in, he took it off, and he said, here, I, I want you to have this. He explained the significance of that shirt, the times that he had had it on, the things that had happened in his life when he wore it. And then he handed me some other things. He handed me a hat, his favorite hat. His whole family recognizes him. His, all of his friends recognize him with that, that hat on. And then, then he handed me a hammer. Some people see the hammer in my office today and think it represents me hammering on some nails here at church every once in a while as I was seen doing when I wasn't napping during the week. But he handed me this hammer that he has built so many things in his life with pair of work gloves that he wore, his favorite chisel. You get the point. He laid all of these things down just as Jonathan had handed over his tunic and his weapons to David, and he made a similar commitment to me. Never had a friend like this before, and I want us to be friends no matter what. Now listen. This doesn't happen in the life of preachers. It rarely happens in the life of any man. In fact, in my 52 years, I have never heard of this happening to anyone. But it happened to me. Just like that day several years ago in the basement of this church, two men having a heated conversation about the other's lack of effort and having a friendship And then for the next six years, two men intentionally committing to become good friends that are good friends today. March, March 20th, 2004, when the person who would be my best friend stood toe to me, stood toe to toe with me and said, all of me to you. And then spent the next 16 years demonstrating it. How did this and other deep, meaningful relationships come about? The only answer I can give you is that it, it started when I was 10 years old. And I was in the third row of my home church. And after weeks of standing there with tears in my eyes, scared to death to do it, I stepped out in the aisle. And I came before the church and I surrendered my life in baptism to Jesus Christ. And that day, that day Jesus Christ took off his robe of righteousness and he put it on me. That day, 
Jesus handed me the sword of truth, his word, the Bible, and a friendship was born. A life-giving covenant was made, and from that one friendship, all of the others have come. Oh, to have a friend like Jonathan? You do. You do. His name is Jesus. You see, true friendship, true friendship is born. True friendship is born when two people make the decision to lay down his life for the other. Right? Isn't that when true friendship is made? True friendship is born when two people make the decision to lay down their life, his life for the other. Jesus Christ has laid down his life for you. Now it's your opportunity. It's your move to make. First, to make a covenant with him in baptism. And then from there, to understand the significance of relationship in your life as a Christian man or woman. Not every acquaintance... Not every acquaintance is going to become a true friendship. There's only one way true friendship happens. It's when two people of the same faith and mind set out to make it that, laying one's life down for the other. Let's stand and let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for all of those who have been within its speaking, that have heard this word. Father, your word, the Bible tells us that when it is spoken, when it is sent out, that it doesn't return empty, but that it penetrates even the most hardened heart. It divides falsehoods from truth. And tonight, Father, I pray that 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 is the reality that people will allow happen in their life. Not just so good friendships can be made on this earth, but so true and effective friendships can be born that honor you and that change the world around us, that they know we're Christians by our love for one another, our sacrifice for one another, our ability to keep keep trust with one another. Father, you, you made the first move to establish friendship again for us to have with you. Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. And so tonight, Father, for those who have yet to surrender to you, to receive your spirit, which will empower them just as it has me, to have the relationships that you've blessed me with. Father, tonight I pray that they would say yes to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, this is your opportunity to respond. Whether you're online and you want to send me a text right now and talk about your next decision, your next step. Those of you who are in this room, Jesus Christ offered to you is as good now as it was 2,000 years ago. Come. Surrender. 
to him as we sing.